So I'm curious, what are some what are some numbers that you keep track of that weren't on there? I heard a couple things about um, paid time off and the per diem when you're on a business trip, like how much money you can spend on company dime. Those are some numbers that other people track. What are some other numbers that you heard people keep that uh, the rest of you keep track of? Anyone else? Just raise, just just shout it out. Yes, Tabitha. The clock. Oh, you keep track of time. Yeah, that's a number for sure. You keep track of time. Okay. Any other? What was that? Oh, wait. Yes, scale. Yes, your how much you weigh. All right. Any other numbers that you keep track of? Anybody? Yes. Yes. Precipitation rate in the Apple weather app tells you how much rain. Yes. Quite heavy today, actually. Quite heavy this morning, and I think throughout the day. So, yeah, kind of exciting. Yeah, very exciting about the rain. Any other numbers? Miles per hour. Um, I like to keep track of um, the miles per gallon. I, I keep track of fuel efficiency and like maximum fuel efficiency. Um, I will tell you one number I'm tracking, this is a great segue, is the progress we're making in our Stratum grant. Okay, our Stratum grant. So Sam, if you could pull that up, um, that'd be great. So we are, we are collecting donations for a matching grant today, and this is how much we've raised. So it's a dollar for dollar, and right now we've raised um, 6,000, about $6,000 to our goal of 21,000. So if, um, it's a dollar for dollar, meaning like if you give a dollar, we receive a dollar from that grant. And so I want to encourage you, if you are a regular attender and it's not your habit of giving, to use the platform. It's in our Slack. Um, thank you for those of you who give regularly and do so. Um, I'm going to extend the deadline for this. I'm confident we're going to get it um, throughout the rest of this month. Okay? I think I said February 15th, and we'll extend it um, through the entire month of February. Okay? Um, and so the bit goes back to this idea. You know, we, we keep track of all kinds of numbers. And they are so important because we know when you set, for instance, a SMART goal, the M stands for measurable. We look for measurable goals. And our world is obsessed with measurements because measuring means winning. You can tell if you're winning based on what you measure. And as you've noticed in some of these um, categories that I put up in the, in the, uh, in the slide, some of them even have to do with relationships. Like one of them has to do with who pays for a meal, right? Relatives who pay for meals. Um, and so we recognize that even in romantic or otherwise kind of relationships, you track numbers. Who initiates, who pays, um, who hosts, who texts back the fastest. Um, and as in the case of today's sermon, how often you have to forgive. And so that leads me to our verse for today. It comes from Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. And it goes like this. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Let me read that again. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And so I have three points that I want to do today. First is debt as measurement. Debt forgiving is receiving. And then the great debt reset. The great debt reset. So let's start. Um, debt as measurement. We are in our, first, our fifth sermon in this Lord's Prayer series. Sermon on the Mount happens on a mountain. That goes Mount Sinai. And the Sermon on the Mount addresses the law and the requirement to be perfect. And that in internal and external righteousness matters. So we've, do we have the slide for the, um, the entire series, Sam? Um, and so the Lord's Prayer is a new kind of law for how we relate with God. And God, is the God the Father is the one who's being addressed. So you want to remember who you're talking to. And then John taught us a couple weeks ago that God the Father wants to be with us and that we can imagine and think about this future kingdom that is coming. We're asking for that to happen. 
And then uh, last week, Grant preached about, he talked about what it means to have a daily need. He, I remember the structure of his sermon was so beautiful. Bread, bread, daily bread, living bread, right? We've got physical sustenance. We've got, we don't have a lifetime supply. We get today's supply, and then we receive living bread in Jesus, right? And so now we are, here we are today on the topic of relationships, on the topic of forgiveness. Um, and again, this is progressive, meaning you have to believe the Father is good, his will and his kingdom are good, that his daily provision is good, and then now the relationships are good. He has something for us in our relationships. And so let's go back to the first slide, Matthew 6, 12, and let me notice, let me point out one thing to you. I want you to notice that the word in this verse is not sin. It is debt. And in Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus does use the term sin, but he uses debt here. And so the idea of sin and debt can't be that far off, right? The, the Venn diagram has to overlap a lot. There has to, there has to be something very much in common. And so what we want to do today is just kind of examine why did Jesus choose the word debt? Because the first impression you may get about the word debt is that it's something impersonal. It's not relational. And throughout, um, and throughout the, the way we talk about it in our culture, you may have heard it said, you don't do business with friends. You definitely don't loan money to your friends. Don't do business with family. And all the point of that is debt and money transactions ruin the relationship. But I want you to think about something. I want you to imagine, or I want you to think about the history of the financial system, right? And I know some of you take a, a, an interest in that. Throughout the course of history, um, what we have is all kinds of debt were based on trust. Every kind of debt is based on trust. And even today, the way our financial system works, whether it's a central bank, there's a central bank, an institution, and the Federal Reserve, and FDIC that provides insurance, you trust the bank and the banking system to facilitate a debt transaction, right? So when you take out a mortgage, you take it out with the bank and you trust the bank to give you the money and then they trust you to be able to pay it back. So you have a whole system. But all of that is based on trust. And even the way cryptocurrency works, it all it's all based on trust. It's not based on the central banking system. It, it's based on a system called Bitcoin, or not Bitcoin, um, what's the word? Blockchain. It's based on a, an algorithm called blockchain that validates the transaction. But you are placing either trust in a central banking system or some system to validate the transaction. But if you think about it, in the ancient Near East, there was no central bank. Okay, there's no Federal Reserve, there's no FDIC, there's no internet. And so how did banking transactions, how did debt operate? It operates on trust. You lent money to your friends and family and then they lent money to you. You didn't lend money to strangers. So debt always operated in the context of relationship. Now, some of you may be thinking, no, I don't, I don't necessarily see that. I'm not sure if that's the case. Well, let's take a look at a parable Jesus told, and let me illustrate that connection between debt and trust in relationships. And we're going to look at Matthew 18, verse 21. Matthew 18, 21 says this, Then Peter came up and said to him, he's talking to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. And then verse 30, 23. Therefore, and then Jesus tells the parable, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 
Okay, so the, I'm not going to read the whole um, parable yet. So I want you to notice a couple things. The context of this man, of Peter coming to Jesus, is about forgiveness. It's about relationship. That's the context. And Jesus, instead of telling a story about, you know, relationship, he tells a story about something we think is impersonal. He tells a story about debt, owing 10,000 talents. But what does that tell you? There is some relationality that goes with debt. There is some, there's a trust relationship that goes with that. There's a trust that the borrower is going to pay back the lender, okay? That's how debt operates. And so when we talk about debt, let me give you a definition that encompasses this idea of sin. I want you to think about debt as unmet relational obligation, okay? Debt is unmet relational obligation. And what does that mean, for instance? Well, one example of an unmet relational obligation is the debt that our parents or caregivers owe us, right? We all have experienced probably some kind of hurt or neglect or abandonment or some type of pain at the hands of our parents, and that is a type of debt against us. And I have friends and relatives who grew up without a father, and that father wound is a debt against them. Okay, there's a type of neglect. But make, make no mistake, this works both ways, this unmet relational obligation, because children also sin against their parents. And there are all kinds of unmet relational obligations that I owe to my parents. I'm, I can't even count. I mean, that's kind of, yeah. I can't even count the number of times that I have been um, disrespectful to them or spoken disrespectfully. And so this goes both ways. Borrower and lender happen in relationships, and debt is a form of unmet relational obligation. It's your unmet duties to another person. So if sin and debt are inter interchangeable, I still haven't answered then, why did Jesus choose the word debt versus sin? Well, sin is a vague and abstract term. I mean, it simply means to fall short or miss the mark. But debt, by design, you can measure. Debt is financial, and everything financial is meant to be measured. It's hard to measure sin, but debt is measured all the time. Who owes what and how much and the interest payment and the amortization schedule and the collateral and the principal. Um, everything about debt is measurement. And Jesus chose to use the word debt, believe, because it's measurable. It's a measurement. And that's my first point. He wants us to measure debt, both as a borrower and also as a lender. And so that leads me to the second point, that debt forgiveness is receiving. Debt forgiving is receiving. And so why would Jesus choose a measurement word? Because, Jesus, because Peter chose to measure it first. Let's go back to um, uh, Matthew 18, verse 21. Peter comes up to him and says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? What is Peter asking? He's asking for a number. Peter wants to measure forgiveness as many as seven times. And then Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. So he gives uh, Peter an absurd number. 70 times seven is 70 is 490, right? It's a big number. The point is it's a lot, right? The point is it's a lot. And then he tells this parable now in verse uh, 23, a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, this is going to be fun. I'm going to nerd out for a little bit. Um, and 
And I know pastors do this all the time and try to calculate the, the amount of what, what this is equivalent to in today's dollars. And so I'm going to attempt to do that. A talent is about 75 pounds. The price of gold today is $30,000 per pound. Okay, so we're looking at, based on this, about $22 billion. Okay, 10,000 talents is about $22 billion. Okay, I see some of you like, you know, scrunching your face, whatever. Okay, that's fine. You know, that's, that's an incomprehensible sum. And just to put it in context, in 59 BC, the Egyptian king Ptolemy, I think it's Aledes, bribed Julius Caesar for 6,000 talents. A king bribed another king to be 6,000 talents. So it's, a, it's an absurd sum of money. This is an absurd sum of money that we're talking about. It is incomprehensible to us. Most of us cannot relate to a billion dollars. But this is what this servant owed. And then it says in verse 25, let's keep reading the story. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. And so let me pause for a second. And I want you to bookmark this idea. Okay, I want you to bookmark it. See, when you get a mortgage, when you get a mortgage and a house, the collateral is the house. So what that means is if you can't pay the loan, you give the, you give the bank or the lender the house. Okay? In the ancient Near, Near East, if you couldn't pay the loan, they get you. <laughs> okay? They get you. Okay? That's what slavery is. Right? You pay the debt with yourself. And in this case, not only do you pay it with yourself, what it says here in verse um, 25 is ordered him to be, his master ordered him to be sold, his wife and children and all that he had. So not, it's not just you, it's also your wife, it's also your kids, and probably the subsequent generations will be in slavery. So I want you to think about that. You know, if you, if the, if you don't have any collateral, then the collateral is you. You are the one that's securing the loan. Okay, so continuing in verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. 27. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. This is a crazy amount of money that's forgiven, that's canceled. Okay. 10, well, I said 22 billion is canceled. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. Okay, this guy's been forgiven 22 billion, and now there's another guy who owes him 100 denarii, and I think that's about, I think it's about $10,000, okay, about $10,000, which is not an insignificant sum, but not comparable at all to 22 billion, and it says he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe, and then I'm not going to read the rest of the parable, but just know what happens in the rest of the story is that the, the, the unmerciful servant, the one who's forgiven 22 billion, throws his fellow servant for 10K into prison, Okay. And so let me summarize it here. The servant is treated like a king, the unmerciful one, but the king-forgiven servant treats his peer like a slave. And it's the height of injustice. And this is the most important principle of the gospel, is that you can only forgive to the extent that you have been forgiven. And the message that Jesus is wanting to communicate to us is if you want to keep score, you absolutely can just make sure you get the numbers right, okay? Get the numbers right. Because as a borrower, all of us have racked up an insurmountable debt against God. We owe him everything. And yet God, through Jesus, has canceled that debt and shown great mercy on us 
And therefore, what that means is you can show mercy on others. And so what, uh, what Jesus is saying is, if God resets your score, all your unmet relational obligations, then you can also do likewise because the score he reset for you is crazy. It's like infinite. It's incomprehensible. And therefore, you can do the same for others. And so let's go to back to Matthew 6.12 and see, does this help us understand what's going on in Matthew 6.12? Okay, let me read it one more time. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So there's something strange here, right? It seems to be the opposite of what I'm saying, at least the opposite sequence. It seems you forgive other people first, and then God forgives you. And I, and I think what Jesus is saying here is that these are bound up together. Forgiving others is the way that you demonstrate how much you're forgiven yourself. What Jesus is saying is that there is no way to separate the two. The way that you treat other people demonstrates how God has treated you. And that is true for what it means to be a disciple in every sense. Because relational maturity is spiritual maturity. Or in spiritual maturity is relational maturity. If someone says they are spiritually mature, just look at the quality of the relationships and how much they love people. That's what indicates our spiritual maturity. And so let me say a couple things, maybe um, as a slight aside to this idea of forgiveness. What I want to say about forgiveness is, number one, it doesn't mean that you enable other people's bad behavior. Just because someone's debt is canceled doesn't mean you enable bad behavior. It doesn't mean you act like an idiot and put yourself in harm's way. If you're in um, a toxic or something abusive kind of relationship, you don't Forgiving them doesn't mean you continue to tolerate it, right? Forgiveness does not mean you um, exclude having boundaries, and it is possible to say no. So then why does God choose numbers? Okay, why does Jesus choose numbers? God didn't choose them first. Peter is the one who chose a, pick, who chose a number, who asked about measuring. And so here's the, pr the principle that Jesus is giving us. God will play whatever game we pick, whatever game we want to play. So if you want to play a game of scorekeeping, okay, if you want to play a game of scorekeeping, God can absolutely do that. Just make sure you get the numbers right. And if you get the numbers right, recognize that God has reset the score for you so that you can do the same for others. But if you choose not to reset the score of others, God will also choose not to reset your score. Okay, so the way that you keep score is the way that God is going to keep score with you. And by the way, that is a Sermon on the Mount principle, right? Because it talks about do not judge lest you be judged. And the way that you judge other people, God will do the same. And this is the idea of logical consequences. There's always going to be logical consequences, and that's the nature of God's judgment. And so um, one of the, what we did a survey recently in our Slack about future sermon series, and one of the things that was asked for or, or you know, upvoted was understanding the character of God. And one aspect of the character of God is he works with us based on the way we want to be worked with. And so if you choose not to reset someone's score, God is going to do the same with us. And so the consequence of the unmerciful servant in the parable, because he did not show mercy, is that he also got to be, he was also thrown in jail because he did not show mercy um, on the other servant. And so God is happy to work with us based on the way that we want to work with others. So then the question becomes, and this is my last point, is debt forgiveness 
a real principle. Because if it is, then it must appear throughout the Bible. And this is my last point, the great debt reset. See, one of the principles we've been following through the Lord's Prayer is that every aspect of this prayer originates in the Old Testament, especially in the Torah, the Hebrew law, the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses while he was on Mount Sinai. And now Jesus is giving his own amplified version of the law, of the sermon, which is the Sermon on the Mount. And that means there must have been some kind of debt forgiveness for every Israelite, and there was. And so let's look at Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus chapter 25, and I'm going to start reading in verse 8. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the trumpet, sound the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. 49 is a significant number, okay? It's a big number. It should be significant for you also. For the Israelites tracked numbers, and the seventh day was a holy number. And not only was the seventh day holy, but the seventh year was also holy because every seven years the, law, the land lay fallow, meaning you couldn't sow or reap on the land because it was like a, it was a Sabbath. And then um, on the 49th year, it was like a super Sabbath. Okay, it's a super Sabbath, which means it was a special year which, uh, where the trumpet was blown. Okay, and so the 49th year was super holy because it's a super Sabbath. That means the Super Bowl is super holy because of the 49ers, okay? Because 49 is a super holy number. Do not mistake this. Some of you are holding your faces. Okay, let me read Leviticus 25, verse 10. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. And by the way, jubilee means the trumpet blast. When each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan, that 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. Okay, so let me give you some context. This, this idea of jubilee happened because as the Israelites entered the promised land, in the book of Joshua, um, what it lists is God apportioned. He distributed all these different plots of land to each tribe of Israel, okay? Every tribe except for the Levites. They received their own inheritance. They had another system for how they would um, get sustenance, right? But land meant income, land meant wealth, and so that whole distribution process happened in Joshua. So everyone got, every Israelite received a plot of land. And what this is saying here is that on the 50th year, Right? After 50 years passed, there's liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants, and any kind of debt transaction that had occurred, any kind of transaction where um, property was exchanged, it um, was canceled, and everything went back to its original owner back when the land was first apportioned. Okay? And it's, uh, what I call it is a debt reset. It is a debt reset. And so some of you may have trouble like maybe conceptualizing it. Let me give you, um, let me tell you about a game that I used to play in high school um, that resembles this idea, okay? It's called Big Two. 
or it's also called Revolution. We played a, a, a version of Big Two called Revolution, and then the game Revolution is a card game. And what happens is at the end of one round of the game, everyone is assigned a status. So if you finish first in the game, you become king. And if you finish last, you become scum. Okay, you become scum. And so in high school, when we played this game, um, whoever became scum, we would um, take away their chair. Okay, um, We would ask scum to serve the king, like refreshments and pour them a drink. And then sometimes the king would you know, maybe abuse his authority and like put his feet on top of scum um, to kind of indicate the social hierarchy that was happening okay, as part of the game. And then scum also has to give his two best cards to the king, and the king has to give his two worst cards um, to the scum. But there was, a, there was a thing that you could do in the game where you could reset everything. And that's if, in the course of the game, the scum finishes first. And, that, and, that, and then what happens in the, in the course of the game, it was called revolution. When the scum became king, then the king became scum. The whole um, social hierarchy was inverted. Now, the jubilee was not that. It's not revolution in that same sense. But the idea was it was a complete reset. It was a reset of the social order. And so you'll hear about this. Raise your hand if you heard about this idea of Jubilee. Okay, right? Yeah, most of you. Okay. Um, you probably heard about this idea of Jubilee, Jubilee, and it's often used in political circles to justify the act of wealth redistribution. Okay. And then you have some conservative Christians who say, this is not about wealth redistribution. It's not about stealing from the rich and giving to the poor because uh, it's about a lease. But it is about wealth re redistribution. It absolutely is. But let me tell you, this is not practical for us today. Okay, why is it not practical? We're not Israel. Not everyone started out with land. It's not practical for us to apply. But I think there's something important here that's happening. Because the purpose of the Jubilee, at least initially what we see here, it was meant to protect the poor. It was meant to make sure those who were indebted were protected. It's about showing compassion to the poor. And so I don't want to lose that because I am going to spiritualize this. I do want to say I'm going to spiritualize this, but I don't want to lose the fact that we need to give attention as Christians to the poor, right? And, and we have leaders today of nonprofits that look to help the poor here with us today. And I know many of you serve the poor in terms of doing a path, whether it's leading a path game night or leading a Bible study at path, which is permanent supportive housing downtown or being part of homeless dinners. Many of you are a part of protecting and looking out for the poor, and that is an important function of the church. But to all those people that are arguing about whether this is wealth redistribution or not, um, I think they're missing the point, and the point of the Jubilee is fairly clear. So let me give you some verses where I italicize what I think is the purpose of the Jubilee. Okay, we're going to look at Leviticus 25, verse 39. If your brother, if your fellow Jew, becomes poor besides you and sells himself to you, and the word for that is slavery. You shall not make him serve as a slave. You shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired servant and as a sojourner. He shall serve you until the, with you until the year of the Jubilee. And in the year of the Jubilee, he gets to be go free. But the idea is you shall not make him serve as a slave. Leviticus 25, 41. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children. This is the Jew that was formerly in servitude, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. Is it in italics? Okay, that's okay. Um, for they are my servants, whom I brought you out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. See that idea again? They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, 
but shall fear your God. So God's hammering this idea home. Now, 30, uh, 53, 25, 53. A foreigner shall treat a poor Jew sold into slavery as a servant hired year by year. He shall not ruthlessly, he shall not rule ruthlessly over him in your sight. And if he is not redeemed by these means, then he and his children with him shall be released in the year of Jubilee. For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Okay, what am I trying to say here with all these verses? There is something that's, that God is kind of pounding into our head. Do not make slaves of your fellow Israelites. And even if an Israelite becomes a slave, you cannot treat him like a slave. Because the purpose of, the, of a jubilee, purpose of the jubilee ultimately was to prevent slavery. Why is that so important to God? It tells us in that last verse, they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. God's whole purpose in the Exodus was to rescue the people of Israel out of slavery. He's like, don't do it again. Don't make each other slaves because this is the whole point of why I rescued you. It's to keep you out of slavery. And so I want us to think about what it means to be a slave. I mean, what does that have to do with forgiveness, right? It has to everything to do with forgiveness. See, when someone keeps score with you and you start falling behind, you are a slave. And like I said, I've lost track of the number of times I've spoken disrespectfully to my parents. I don't remember all the times I've lost my temper with my wife and children. And it's a number I try not to think about, but it's a number I keep feeling like I fall behind on. And I remember back when I worked at IBM, I was part of an intramural basketball team. It's called the Watson League. And it was a bunch of like new college hires that formed a team together. And we thought we were, um, actually, we didn't think we were that good. But we were at least young. Okay, we are at least young. Um, and we played this team of older guys. And I didn't know this, but they had played together for like 15 years. And they completely destroyed us. Completely destroyed us. And I think at halftime, it was like 30 to like 7. Okay, 30 to 7. And I think the final score was like 80 to 16. Okay, and at, at, during this game, um, I'm just getting angrier and angrier at my team, and there is just this sense of despair, because I don't think this team was even trying, but the score just kept going up and up. And they weren't even trying to run it up on us, but the score kept going up and up. And that's what it feels like when you're behind in the score, when you're behind in debt. There's just a sense of despair that you can never catch up, and the gap between you and that other person gets bigger and bigger. And that was the purpose of Jubilee, to set people free from slavery. And that's what it means to be in slavery as a lender. But you know what? If you're a borrower, if, you, if you're a borrower, but you know what? If you're a lender, you can also be in slavery. Because it's another type of slavery when you keep score. And it's the slavery of being the lender and not the borrower. And there's a little, there's kind of a dirty secret, maybe, when it comes to being in ministry, or especially those in helping professions. And what can happen in these helping professions, um, and I have definitely succumbed to it, is this um, premise that I'm going to do something good for you. I'm going to do something good for you, Noah. I'm going to do something good for you, Liz. And you know what's going to happen is that you're going to owe me. You're going to owe me, and you're going to owe me, and you're going to owe me, and I'm going to keep track of everyone's debt that accumulates against me, and all of you are going to owe me. And you know what? That's a different kind of slavery, that kind of scorekeeping. 
It may not be a slavery of despair, but it's a slavery of anger and bitterness and disappointment. And yet scorekeeping is not God's game because the year of Jubilee is evidence of that. But the tragedy is this. There's no evidence Jubilee was ever practiced by Israel. There's no evidence that it actually ever happened. And yet, I believe this law went fulfilled. Because remember, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in chapter 5 that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so let me read for you from Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The cross was the greatest financial transaction of all time, where we were redeemed out of slavery and death to become his servants, where our debts were canceled, and the score for all eternity was reset. God reset the score. And so if you're tracking the debt you owe to God and the despair that you can never pay him back and feel a nagging sense of worthlessness, you're a slave. If you're tracking the debt of loved ones, that's spouses, siblings, parents who have hurt you, who've neglected you, who've broken family unity, and you're weighed down by that sadness, by that disappointment, by that anger, by that resentment or loss, you're also a slave. And if you secretly do things for others in order to rack up debt that people owe you to earn a sense of approval from God, and to make sure you never have to owe other people anything, and you're driven by this sense of obligation and duty that robs you of your joy, you're also a slave. And finally, if you're tracking God's debt against you, or you wanted something or, or someone so badly that he has not given you, and you feel this chasm of emptiness and bitterness because of that list of grievances, you're also a slave. But the good news is this, it is now the year of the Lord's favor, and Jesus has an anti-slavery program for you because he came to purchase you and cancel all of your debts and reset your score. And so the, the thing I want you to be thinking about today, and we don't have a post-sermon prompt because we'll have our sharing time later, it's what is a relationship score that you want to reset Either a score God has against you or a score that you have that you're wondering that others have against you. What's a relationship score that you want to reset? And so let me give you the practice for this because this, this is all about prayer, right? So how does this relate to prayer? Well, last week, Grant talked about this prayer of give us today. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day today. And notice that it also says and. It says and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So what is the idea here? Here's the idea, that forgiveness is a process and a journey that you go on every day. Because Jesus understands something. Every day, your score is going to go up. Either the score that, God, that you rack up against God or that others rack up against you. Okay, Every day, that score is going to go up. And what Jesus is saying is you pray this so that God each day would reset that score. You pray each day that God would reset that score, just as you pray each day to trust him for your daily bread. Yes, the cross purchased you for all eternity, but your act of prayer is like, Lord, would you reset that score for me today, just as I do so for others? That is what that means to pray this. 
And so you can surrender the insurmountable debt you owe to God because he canceled it on the cross. You can cancel all the loans that people have taken out on your expense because it is the year of Jubilee. You don't have to live in bondage to obligation expecting others to pay you back. And finally, you can cancel the debt God owes you because he has set the entire creation free from debt. It is the day, the year of Jubilee. Slavery is no more. It is the 49th year. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that we live in the year of 49. We live in the year that is super holy, a super Sabbath. And that all on this day, because of what you accomplished on the cross and buying us, you canceled every debt and you reset every score. And so, Lord, you're not afraid of measurement. You just want us to get the measurements correct. So, God, would you recognize that as a borrower, you have reset our debt. And that means for those whom we lend to, their debt has been canceled and reset as well. And so, Lord, would we pray this each day in, in trusting you that you have reset those debts. In Jesus' name, amen.